0: Minute, I'm Ernesto Arce. Classes are back in session at schools in Cudahy, Southgate and South LA that were doused with jet fuel yesterday afternoon, but it's still unclear why the pilots of the Delta airliner dumped fuel over such a populated area. According to FAA, such fuel dumps are supposed to be done over unpopulated areas and at a high altitude so that the fuel can disperse before reaching the ground. Attorney Michael Avenatti, known for representing porn actress Stormy Daniels in her lawsuit against President Donald Trump was arrested yesterday for allegedly violating the terms of his release while awaiting trial on federal fraud charges. Criminal charges have been filed against a now-retired LAPD officer who was accused by another officer of domestic violence and distributing revenge porn. Nine charges have been filed against Danny Reedy, LAPD senior lead officer who has since retired but was on the force at the time of the alleged crimes. And forecasters say we're in for a big change tomorrow. A storm out of the Gulf of Alaska is making its way south, and it'll bring rain across much of the area by Thursday, along with some snow in the mountains. Clear skies are expected to return by Friday. Support our brand of progressive journalism by donating at kpfk.org today. We'll have another KPFK News update at 3 and the KPFK News at 6.15 p.m.
1: Hello, KPFK. This is Vic Jurami, and you're listening to The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. And I am thrilled to say that I am in the studio with the one and only presidential candidate, Marianne Williamson. I am so happy, honored, privileged to have Marianne here speaking to me about so much that's been happening uh, as a presidential candidate, being on the road nationwide and to just chat, this is um, this is a show that we want to talk about the positives and all things that are great, even though sometimes it's hard to assess that these days. But uh, I want to welcome uh, Marianne to KPFK.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: So Marianne, I just want to ask you sort of broadly, what do you think about the campaign so far?
2: It's been an exhilarating experience and a brutal one, both. I find... Uh, actually talking to people, to voters, about the state of our country, where we've been and where we need to go. Very moving, very poignant, and very hopeful. But then there is another universe out there, another political universe. That's what I call the campaign industrial complex. And that includes the political establishment. It includes the media that is involved with it. It includes such things as the DNC, the polling, the money, the pundits. And that, if anything, is a suppressant to democracy. It is a manipulation rather than a facilitation of the democratic process. Um, I've experienced firsthand and personally how that system resists anyone coming in to have a different conversation than the pre-prescribed one permitted and um The tension between those two universes, the gap between those two universes is concerning to me as an American and potentially tragic for our country.
1: That's very interesting, very dense, what you just said. I mean, what you just said in a couple of minutes can really be broken down into many, (laughs) many, many essays. And I'd never heard of um, campaign industrial complex but of course, as soon as you said it, it made so much sense because we see these giant powers that be that are playing, and I think most Americans sometimes feel very powerless because of of all the politics behind and all the powers that are behind it. I've always known that when it comes to campaigns and the different parties, uh, you know, there's favoritisms and then there's like different standards, different people are held to different standards. I think in this campaign so far, I've seen more of that, at least I've been more observant of more of that, of um, how certain candidates are not allowed as much access and what that really means. Uh, Of course, we always know that uh, women are held to different standards, too, in politics Um, So I've seen a lot of that, too, that's played out.
2: Well, I think you are being charitable in your assessment. This was not just being, I know in my case, this was not just about being held to a different standard. This was about being proactively vilified and demonized. Right. So, and in terms of anyone coming from the outside, such as uh, you saw this with Andrew Yang, you saw it with myself, given much less time on the debate stage and then cast out. Literally, if in fact you're saying things that the prescribed powers don't approve of. Um, But I think that what you said is very significant. We don't name it something like Campaign Industrial Complex, but then when someone does name it, you go, right, it's so true. We're talking about a multi billion dollar business. That's not what our democracy is supposed to be. Our democracy is not supposed to be a multi-billion-dollar business. Right. It is about. It is supposed to be about the collective conscience and will of the American people, no matter who we are, whether we're rich or whether we're poor, whether we're black, whites, gay, straight, man, woman. The, the profundity of the ideal is that there is a wisdom in you and 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 a wisdom in me that should have nothing to do with where we've come from, what we do, who we are, but that has to do with our collective conscience and our own deep-seated wisdom about where the country should go. Now, I feel on this campaign I have touched that place. I've had the honor and the privilege of being around voters and, and, and seeing What I've seen from my career for 35 years, which is that people are good, people are noble, people are smart. If we would just allow that to play itself out, but it's it's being stifled. The will of the people is literally being stifled, and it's being stifled through manipulation. It's not just, you know, when we think of voter suppression, we think of the obvious ways that voter suppression occurs. And, that, and it does, and that's very concerning. But what I've seen on this campaign is that it's not just outright voter suppression. It's voter manipulation by creating narratives about people, false narratives that keep getting repeated and repeated and repeated, smears, propaganda weapons. Right. Even the whole idea, by the way, of an outsider candidate. We should ask ourselves, outside what? Exactly. Outside what? In America, theoretically, there is no outside or inside. We're all equal. And theoretically, your wisdom is no less, more or less important than the wisdom of someone who is a business person or the wisdom of someone who, for that matter, is a congressperson. You know, someone who is, let's say, been a congressperson. Great, you know, I have a lot of respect for that. But I don't know what people think congresspeople do all day. They spend half their time on the phone asking for money. It's not like people in Congress uh, sit around and have deep conversations about America any more than any of the rest of us do. And to say, well, but they are political mechanics and they know how to drive the car. That's true, and I have a lot of respect for that. But our problem today is not a lack of political mechanics. Our problem today is a lack of political vision. It's not that we don't have anyone who knows how to drive the car. It's that we're on the wrong road. Now Americans need to think very deeply about that because we have allowed ourselves to to be lured into a situation where basically we're just observing what they're doing even though at this point in this moment we know we're witnessing a slow moving car crash.
1: Right. And it's been obviously happening for 3 years and we're trying to change that. We're trying to Are we? I hope so. I'd like to think well, so. Well, I
2: think we need to really ask ourselves what we mean by that and ask ourselves what we're doing. Because what happened in the last election was that the DNC put their finger on the, on the scale. I personally think that if they had not done that, then in the primaries, either Hillary would have won or Bernie would have won. But I think we would have all felt good about it, and I don't think Trump would be president today. And this time, they're doing something very similar. But they're not saying it has to be this one person. But it basically has to be people in their crowd. They make it too difficult through polling, through money, uh, through all of these ways. It's very difficult to get in there um, and to stay in there. And they, they have ways through, you know. And it's not it's not is it the DNC? It's the whole matrix. Right. It's media. It's 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 a mindset. And I had before this campaign. Um, here we are at KPFK. I'm an old-style old, old style lefty. I thought a lot of these shenanigans only happened on the right against us, and my eyes have been opened. Um, I am no longer naive about these things. I'd always heard the expression that the left is a circular firing squad, <laughs> but I, I never saw it until I myself was in the center of that firing squad.
1: Yeah, I echo that because— um Someone told me years ago that there's no such thing as liberal media, that uh, media, by design, is, uh, can't be liberal because they're for money, they're to make money. Um, sure, certain networks are less conservative and less biased than others, but overall, corporate media is generating part of the narrative.
2: Well, what you're saying is correct, but I think there's something that goes further than that. Even so-called progressive media, even if it's not just standing for the money, in too many cases is standing for their worldview, as opposed to any openness to anyone else's. And for myself, this is just as dangerous as someone doing it for the bottom line of the money, for instance, because I have a spiritual perspective. There are those in the progressive media, even that are not driven by money, but that still are driven by a worldview that seeks to mock or marginalize anyone with a spiritual perspective. So it's just as diminishing of real democracy.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And the positive part is that you're, and I know because I'm one of them, full disclosure, your army of fans who have been reading your books and have been listening to you, they know the value of that, and they want that to be injected into our political system. Because the, what's been happening hasn't been working. Lack of spirituality in politics hasn't been working. I'll never forget whenever, you know, I'd come see you at the Saban all the time and you'd always say, uh, why can't I talk about politics?
2: And why can't politicians talk about the path of the heart? Absolutely. These categories are artificially created. Uh, they have nothing to do with a uh, with with the separation of church and state. Separation of church and state is an important and enlightened aspect of our of our constitution. It means that the government cannot be influenced, uh, unduly influenced by religious clergy who tell them you can or cannot pass this law, and it means that no one in a church or a synagogue or a mosque or an AA meeting or an atheist meeting is going to have a policeman come in and say break it up. Right. Those things are extremely important. But even that was an effort, the second part of that was an effort by the founders to protect uh, the uh, religious conversation, not to suppress it. And it certainly had nothing to do with leaving larger issues of public morality out of the political dialogue. Now, I grew up at a time when the issue of religious and spiritual values in progressive politics was very, very much the norm. During the uh, Vietnam War. There was a man named William Sloan Coffin, who was a Protestant theologian from Yale. Uh, there was uh, there were these two priests, brothers, called the Berrigan Brothers. And also, when I grew up, both uh, both institutionalized Judaism as well as Catholicism were a large part of the progressive social justice movements in the United States. Um that this simultaneously something happened with both Jews and Catholics uh, it, that happened pretty much at the same time. And it, it, I have to say it took a lot of juice uh, out of uh, social justice movements in the United States. And that is that both of them became, more than ever before, singularly focused on particular issues, uh, Jews on Israel and um, Catholics on the issue of abortion. Whereas previous to that, if there was an issue about social justice, if there was an issue about poverty, if there was an issue about you, 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 you could be rest assured the Jews were going to weigh in on it, and the Catholics were going to weigh in on it. So once again, they became both so so focused uh, in ways that they had not been before, or so primarily or solely focused. So. Um, what has happened is the disengagement of so many of the religious and spiritual voices from progressive politics. Now, it's always stayed together within the black community. Black churches have never disconnected from progressive politics because it was too much a matter of survival. Mm. And it also was very, very accepted within progressive circles. So I'll say things that if I were, uh, first of all, I think if I were a man, um, and if I were an ordained minister, you know, I've said things that, I know many ministers have said, and it's thank you, clergyman, and I say it, and oh, she's a New Age wacko nutcase. Um, now, what you said before, I think is true that many people, I mean, I, I thought at the beginning of my campaign, hey, if everybody who is um, in spiritual circles, New Thought Spirituality, AA, psychotherapy, etc., gives me a listen, then I'll do fine here. But the truth was that once that vilification campaign began, it's pretty surprising to me, the people who were fooled by it, and to be honest, the people who kept their mouths shut, who theoretically would have known better.
1: You know, what you just said sort of reminds me of several quotes from Ellie Wiesel and uh, Desmond Tutu and Martin about Luther King. About neutrality. neutrality, and there's no such thing that's a myth if I forget. I, I apologize Neutrality for paraphrasing. always helps the oppressor. Not the, the oppressed. oppressed. Or if you put your foot on a, on the tail of a mouse uh, and say you're neutral, the, the mouse is not going to appreciate. I'm totally screwing that one up. But it basically talks about how those that sort of like close their eyes and close their ears and say, I'm neutral. I don't see anything. I don't hear anything. I won't say anything they have actually taken the side of the oppressor.
2: I think what happened for me here that was particularly painful to behold, particularly when I saw it in women, was this feeling, well, if they've mocked her, if I defend her, they'll mock me. And I would have hoped that more people would have said, wait a minute, I think that too, and I'm not crazy. Where I've read her books for 35 years. I've never heard her mention crystals. I've known her work with AIDS patients for – For decades, Mm -hmm. I've never heard her tell an AIDS patient not to take their medicine. I've known this Mm -hmm. woman. She's never said any of those things. That, you know, and that that was like really like, whoa, interesting.
1: That's interesting you bring that up because I wasn't going to bring that up because when I was sort of writing down some loose questions to ask you, and I thought, what would I want to, like, what would Marianne want to clear up? And then I came across this myth. I mean, you have. An army of LGBTQIA fans that adore you and love you and have for many, many years before you ran for Congress, before you were running for president. And this this little, tiny, little group still hold on to this egregious myth that I know not to be true about the AIDS um, well, medication, and I thought, she might want to clear that up, then I thought, you know what, I would be sort of like bringing that up all right. over again if I talked about well, it. Well,
2: what matters, and I, I very much appreciate your generosity in that, what matters though is that we understand how the game is played, which is not just about me. If it was just about me, it wouldn't be a relevant topic. This is the deal. When it comes to the AIDS uh, community, and my experience with the AIDS community, Many, many people go back far enough that they were there. So, for many years, one thing that was just never for dis- up for question no matter what you thought of Marianne Williamson, her, her being there for, during the AIDS crisis was indisputable.
1: I just need to say this for uh, audiences that may have not or may not be familiar with Marianne. She's the founder of Project Angel Food. And Project Angel Food was founded many, many years ago. Um, to provide food and to deliver food to people who have have HIV or full-blown AIDS and to take food to them because they couldn't either go out to eat or they couldn't afford it. So Marianne's legacy in HIV-AIDS and in the queer community goes back a long time.
2: It's the long time part that has become an issue because it's been so long. Remember, we're talking about the 80s and the 90s. Mm-hmm. So there are all these people now who were either little children then, who weren't even born then, and they simply don't remember. They didn't know that. Now, what you said, your languaging a couple of minutes ago was hold on to the myth. Let's be very clear there was no myth until this campaign. That myth, which is not a myth, it is a smear. It's a lie. Let's be clear it's a lie. That's what propaganda is. It was deliberately created. So I think Americans need to wake up and become a lot more sophisticated now. This is not a myth people are holding on to. This is a lie that is created and repeated over and over and over again in order to vilify someone and only for one purpose, to shut them up to make it so that intelligent people or people who think that they're so intelligent could not possibly could not possibly take seriously anything that person was saying now For what purpose? Was it anything I was saying about gay people? No, because what I'm saying about gay people and and, you know LGBTQ+, I mean, it's what a lot of progressives are saying. It's what I'm saying about the military-industrial complex. It's about what I'm saying about our food and our water and our toxins and our air and oil and gas. It's what I'm saying about race. It's what I'm saying about criminal justice. It's what I'm saying about the societal neglect of children. This is serious, and everybody in America, this is a lot dirtier than, quote-unquote, holding on to a myth. It's being led so easily. And also, when you know... Something is a lie. It's what you were saying about neutrality. You're afraid to say anything, then people are going to make fun of you. Now, I don't think that that happened so much with the LGBTQ thing because I did feel very defended. I felt that a lot of people, you know, there were people who got online and said, hey, I was there. That's not what happened. So on that one, I I did appreciate, and I do appreciate, I believe that people did. But on some of the other stuff about the just generalized, wacky, crystal stuff— um. One one woman said to me at one point. She said to me in a whisper, "I support you," and I said, "Why are we whispering?" <laughs> and we were whispering because she, if I was teased and made fun of, she was afraid that if she said, "I support Marianne Williamson," that she would
1: be teased and made fun of. It's you know, it's like going back to high school.
2: It is high when, school. It, let me tell you something. Yeah. I but I felt this way even before the campaign. Yeah. I felt like oh, high school doesn't prepare you for real life, and then you realize, no, life is so high school.
1: Yeah, it's very, um, <laughs> it's very high school. Uh, it's very high school. Where you, you know, the kid that's taunted and bullied and is made fun on, uh, other kids may be sympathetic, and other kids may understand him, her, them, and, and even uh, relate, but they keep their distance because uh, they don't want the other bullies to see them associating.
2: You know, um, what you're saying is not only profoundly true it is profoundly important. And I, in this campaign, I feel like I have been in the belly of the beast. And you know what? That is literally true. Because that part of us that remains silent when we know better, that is what the beast is. Mm-hmm. The beast is that aspect of us that does not stand up for love. It's not enough to proactive. To, to proactively speak for love. We must also proactively defend the voices of love when others speak them, and especially when other people are getting Absolutely. punished for it. Now, the bigger issue we have to look at, like I said, this is bigger than one person's campaign, it's bigger than me. We've got a really, really, really big issue here. And that is forces of authoritarianism, global th- authoritarianism and neo-fascism are literally standing at our door. This is so not the time to be shutting anyone up who's speaking anything close to a progressive message.
1: Right. I wanna I wanna elaborate on that. But first, let's do a station ID. So we'll be right back after this break.
3: I, I want what everybody else wants. I mean, you know, not, I don't want to coin it the American dream, but it's hard to get up once you're on the bottom. That uh, Black women are the number one demographic who are disproportionately disadvantaged into poverty and homelessness.
2: Landlords are gleefully raising rents to absorbent heights because they can.
1: Tune in this Monday, January 20th from 2 to 4 p.m. to learn more about the fight against homelessness, a KPFK special. At this point, any, any roof over my head that has four walls and like a bathroom or a kitchen.
3: Maybe you've been listening to Pacifica and KPFK
2: for years, even decades, and you appreciate how important KPFK is in your life. If you're a forward-thinking donor who wants future generations to benefit from KPFK's independent journalism and unhindered creativity, then join KPFK's Legacy Circle and include KPFK in your will or living trust. For details, visit our website at kpfk.org, and thank you for considering KPFK in your future gift-giving plan.
1: If you are just joining us, uh, this is Vic Gerami, your host, and you're listening to The Blunt Post with Vic. And my guest today is the, the special great Marianne Williamson, presidential candidate. And we are talking about, uh, well, many different topics, uh, including the campaign and the state of democracy and the state of our country. Uh, so thank you for joining us. And uh, Marianne and I have been talking about something that's actually been very much part of my consciousness of people not speaking out, majority of people, when injustice is done. You know, when when you look back at the Me Too movement and these years, decades of so many women being victimized, (coughs) you just wonder, I think for every woman, there were many, many, many more people who knew something or suspected or even involved who sort of took the excuse of, I don't want to be involved uh, and took the safe road And the band played on. And this happens in so many different areas of our world. So before I forget, Marianne, I wanted to um, remember one more quote that really resonates with me, which is, I think it's from Martin Luther King, who said, in the end, we will not remember the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Thank you. And I was going to ask Marianne sort of toward the wrap up to say, you know, what can listeners do? What can people who believe you and want change to do? But I'm not. I'm going to do it now because we've been talking about how the establishment, the political and the campaign industrial uh, complex. complex has been sort of um, engineered to sort of have like this popular kids group and shut out anyone that has a different message or doesn't fit the mold and is not playing the game of the much larger billions of dollars industries that are the key players, what can we do in the next, what, 11 months, Marianne?
2: Well, first of all, I so appreciate your obvious deep understanding of what's going on here below the surface. And you mentioned the Me Too movement. You mentioned the abuse of women, sexual harassment of women. And you mentioned that extraordinarily relevant line from Martin Luther King, we will in the end not remember uh, the words of our, of our enemies. We will also remember the silence of our friends. We have gotten as a society that when a woman is being sexually harassed, someone should speak up. But there are different kinds of ways that a woman can be harassed. Mm -hmm. There are different kinds of ways that a woman can be abused, and mocking her, telling lies about her in the public sphere. Remember, women didn't used to be in the public sphere as much as we are now, so this is relatively new. And when lies are repeated about a woman, narratives just continue to be extended when there's no fact-checking on it and it just said over and over again. Speaking up, it's a form of bullying. Absolutely. It's a form of bullying. It's a form of abuse. And the saddest part for me, Vic, is how many times women are the abusers. I mean, I've experienced some things, and I thought, wow, I bet that woman thinks of herself as a feminist.
1: Yeah, sometimes the enemy is from within, too.
2: Well, it always is. It always is, including in all of us. I've I've looked at myself with so much of this because— in The Course in Miracles, it says that only if you take 100% responsibility for your experience will you be able to change it. So I've had to certainly look deeply at myself. What what part did I play, etc. cetera? But um, I think there are two things that bring up other people's darkness, your darkness, but also your light. And I think it's kind of like when you're at an airport. If you see something, say something. Right. I think that when you say, what can we do, we all need to speak up now. And your image of the bully was really, uh, really true. Somebody else is being bullied, and it's what I'd said before. Somebody else is being mocked. You're afraid if you stand up for them, you'll be bullied or you'll be mocked. This is not the time for silence. This is the time for speaking our truths in times and in places where it's convenient And in times and in places where it is inconvenient, that is the only way we will make it through these very, very turbulent waters.
1: I completely agree. It's time to put away people-pleasing.
2: Thank you. I, I, it's so funny that you say that because that's exactly what I talk about all the time. It's a politics of people pleasing. And I say to audiences on this campaign, I'm not here to say to you what I think you, you need to, want to hear. You know, these, these politicians, and by the way, I, I'd like to make a distinction between the candidates and the system. Right. Because I've been running for president. I've gotten to know a lot of these people. The candidates, the vast majority of the candidates, very lovely people. They're victims of it too. So this is not about the candidates. My critique here it's about the system and the the, the container for all of this. That's right. very different. It's very important to me. But politicians are they go into a situation and they're told this is what you should say that blacks want to hear. This is what you say that gay people want to hear. This is what you say that women want to hear, etc. And to me, we have to talk to each other right now as Americans. You're gay and you're American. You're Jewish and you're American. You're black and you're American. You're woman and you're American. In all of the the. Individual identities that are in trouble are in trouble because America's in trouble. Right. So I I, I say to audiences so often, I'm not here to tell you what somebody told me you want to hear. I'm here to talk to you as adults about how we must come together now and think about what is happening in our country and what we must do to change things so that future generations— we'll be able to experience the blessings of this this democracy. And I feel there's a listening for that. I feel there's a deep listening for that, and that's all the more reason why it is so disturbing that there are forces out there who seek to manipulate and even suppress the democratic process because they think they know better. It's very paternalistic. It's not democracy. It's this paternalism of we know what would be best for people, so we're going to try to herd them. Into a particular, um, into a, pr- a particular view of things. It did not work in 2016, and I have deep concerns about what how it bodes uh, for the future over the next two years.
1: Yeah, um, thank you for that. That's a lot. I hope listeners are sort of wheels are turning, and uh, those of us that have known Marianne and believe in Marianne and. I know that Marianne's helped me for over 10 years uh, through some really tough times just listening to her. Uh, we have to go into third gear now. We are—we can't just sit um, – I recently wrote an article about this. We can't just sit back and say so-and-so in D.C. is going to fix it or in the state capitol is going to fix it or the mayor's office is going to fix it. We're all part of this. Um, it's all. It's up to us to do whatever we can. Um, if you are in media, to uh, to write about it, whether it's just articles or blogging <laughs> or whatnot, or talk to people. And it's really time not to play politics of respectability, uh, people pleasing. Yes, we respect our friends who who have their own favorites as candidates or even different political parties. Um, But that's okay. But we must not uh, try to please uh, by not saying what's true and correct people when they when they repeat a lie, uh, repeat a a slander and in some cases libel. Um, And that's really important. I do want to go over some of the sort of the most profound things that are part of your agenda that uh, is sort of missing (laughs) from others um, that that people really should know about, because uh, it's very comprehensive. Your, your plan and your vision for America is very detailed. It's very comprehensive. And you go into strategic details as to how you would plan it out. Obviously, we don't have enough time for that. But you know, some of the things that would be health care, and you do want to bring in uh, Medicare into an option, into the Obamacare option. Do you want to say a few things? Yes, but
2: it's more than that that uh, I'm very excited about with my whole health plan. First of all, we need to ask ourselves more than just how we're going to pay for universal health care, as important as that is, and my plan certainly covers that. But we also have to ask, and I mentioned this on one of the first debates. We have to ask ourselves: Why are so many of us sick? Why do we have such a higher level of chronic illness than do other than do citizens in other countries of comparable wealth? Well, then you'd have to look at the contaminants in our water. You'd have to look at the carcinogens in our food. You'd have to look at the toxins in our in our air, and you'd even have to look at our economic policies that cause people so much stress, which you know is an indicate you know which is makes sickness far more probable. Now. Now, if we were to do the things I just said, then we would have to look at how sold out the system has become to food companies and chemical companies and oil and gas companies and agribusiness. So what the political system does is it talks to us about how it's going to treat the symptom, but it doesn't really want us to look at the cause because they are the cause. Now, the second thing that my whole health plan does is that it takes – all of the integrative medical models, dietary change, lifestyle change—that is now proven, scientifically established—to be in many cases equally efficacious, in not only healing, in, in not only treating disease but even reversing disease. And it makes it part of a patient's bill of rights that it is mandated that if you go to the doctor, and the doctor uh, diagnoses a particular illness, but also then gives a pharmaceutical or a surgical. A prescription, that you be informed of the dietary and lifestyle changes which are established to also be efficacious so that you can decide for yourself. You know, most medical schools in America today give the average medical student one semester of of study in the relationship between food and medicine, there, uh, and food and sickness. There was a study recently about heart stents, and many men get heart stents. They now have established that dietary changes and lifestyle changes are equally beneficial and ameliorative. Now, also in my plan, insurance is uh, regulated in such a way that insurance has to pay, not only the Medicare option that uh, uh, that is part of my plan, but even any private uh, insurance that someone might want to keep becomes heavily regulated. And one of those regulations is that the integrative uh, healing modalities have to be paid for at an equal rate as every other. So it's quite revolutionary, you know. It 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 brings into as my entire campaign does a conversation not just about symptoms but also about causes and a real rethinking of what these issues are. What's the issue underneath the issue? The issue underneath the healthcare issue is that. Many of us are so sick. What's going on here? And I address that, and taking us all the way back to why they don't want me on that stage.
1: (laughs) At a time when (laughs) big
2: pharmaceutical companies, health insurance companies, wake up, America. The naivete is going to kill us all.
1: Yeah, and and you know, at a time when we just heard the latest news that we're still fighting to keep Obamacare. Um, Oh, what happened in the—you
2: are so right. What happened with the Supreme Court the other day, striking down the constitutionality of the mandate. Uh, The corporatists, of course, that is the most tragic thing about uh, the results of this last presidential election, is how uh, the president was able to put Kavanaugh and Gorsuch on the court. Of course, he might even be able to get more than than they. And it is definitely a corporatist Supreme Court, five to four, and it could even get worse. And that's certainly an example of that certainly an example.
1: One of the biggest tragedies of what happened in 2016 is the Supreme Court and the ramifications of that that could haunt us for decades. Absolutely. Um,
2: And throughout the judiciary at other levels as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk about you've been very outspoken about reparations before your presidential run. I've heard (laughs) you speak about this for several years, and it just seems like it should be... Such an important thing that so many people don't really even mention. But I think for listeners who may not be familiar with your advocacy on that, um, I think that they would want to hear a few words.
2: There is a universal spiritual and transformational theme, which is basically that you can't have the future you want unless and until you're willing to clean up the past. So that's why Catholics go to confession. It's why the holiest day of the Jewish New Year is Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. It's why in Alcoholics Anonymous, people are told they have to admit the exact nature of their character defects and take a fearless moral inventory. Well, we have a national character defect, and it's been with us from the very beginning. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, when he drove up to what is now Independence Hall for the signing of the Declaration of Independence, first of all, when he arrived there, this is the man who wrote these earth-shattering words that have changed the world and create possibility for you and me and everyone listening in ways that would other not, otherwise not be possible, that we take these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That's true. He, he wrote those things. He had originally written, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. And Adams and um, uh, Benjamin Franklin uh, persuaded him to change it to self-evident but at the same time he drove up to independence hall what was then pennsylvania hall with three of his slaves so that dichotomy has always been with us anything that was it was in jefferson's brain jefferson's life is in the american it's in the american dna actually all that is right and all that is wrong so The issue with race is that the first slaves were brought over to the United States, uh, before it was even the United States, to the colonies in 1619, and slavery was not abolished till the end of the Civil War. So that's almost 250 years. Now, after that, there was another 100 years. You could take out of that 12 years uh, that was years of Reconstruction. But other than that, basically, in addition to 250 years of abject slavery, the most cruel The the most heinous, the most heinous uh, institutionalized evil. In addition to that, then you had another 100 years of institutionalized violence against black people. What do you call lynchings? What do you call Ku Klux Klan if not domestic terrorism? Now, at the end of the Civil War, General Sherman promised to every former slave family of four 40 acres and a mule— And there were, historians believe, there were between four and five million people emancipated, slaves who were emancipated at that time. There was an economic gap. That promise was then rescinded. And to be, just bluntly, that economic gap has never been closed. Now, a hundred years after the end of slavery, we passed the Civil Rights Act, which dismantled uh, segregation. And then the next year, the Voting Rights Act in 1965 established equal access to the polls. But even that, since 2013, they're chipping away at that, which is what has caused all this voter suppression. Right. But the issue that remains as an underlying resentment, turbulence, and systemic injustice is the issue of financial remuneration. Which by the middle of the 20th century, I mean, even, even Sherman mentioned it, by the end of the 20th century, it was totally recognized as, as simply what civilized peoples do. Germany has paid uh, Jewish organizations $89 billion in reparations since World War II. Now, does it mean the Holocaust didn't happen? Of course it doesn't. But it has gone far towards establishing reconciliation between uh, Germany and the Jews of Europe. In addition to that, uh, in 1988, Ronald Reagan signed the American Civil Liberties Act, and that is where we gave to all people who are the former uh Prisoners who were were still alive, the prisoners from the Japanese internment camps during World War II, were paid between twenty and twenty-two thousand dollars. So this idea of paying a historical debt should not be considered some fringe idea, because it's not. It is a lack of level playing field uh, that has continued and is with us to this day.
1: Well said. I want to respond to that. Uh, But first, I just want to, for our listeners who just tuned in, this is uh, KPFK 90.7 FM. You're listening to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and my guest is presidential candidate Marianne Williamson. In the studio, we are just chatting about uh, many different topics, including the campaign. So we'll be right back after this
4: break. KPFK supports the League of Women Voters of Los Angeles, the county's League of Women Voters, Ladera Heights Civic Association, and United Homeowners Association as they present a free public forum featuring candidates running for Los Angeles County Supervisor 2nd District. Thursday, January 16th, 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. at Knox Presbyterian Church, 5840 La Tierra Boulevard at Slauson. In Los Angeles, limited seating with early arrival is recommended. Limited lot parking and street parking is available. Information, visit www.lwvlosangeles.org.
1: KPFK 90.7 FM. You're listening to The Blunt Post with Vic. Presidential candidate Marianne Williamson in the studio. We were just talking about the reparations that are long overdue. And, uh, you know, Marianne is uh, spiritually, she, she talks about so many different things, and she's so versed in so many different things as, uh, admittedly, I'll get some uh, heat for saying this, but, you know, I've been sober for over 11 years, and I'm always very impressed by her astute um, about 12 steps in AA, and uh, she was talking about uh, making good for the wrongs and your character defects, which in AA would be a fourth step. And then we also have the ninth step, or eighth step and a ninth step in AA, which is about making amends. And that's what we haven't done to the African-American community, um, which is to make amends and make good so that we can sort of have a clean slate.
2: I think that's um, an interesting particular issue today because there's a lot of talk about investigating your own white privilege. And that inner work is important. But integrative politics, which is what we need now, includes both inner and outer change. Martin Luther King talked about how we need quantitative shifts in our circumstances and also qualitative shifts in our souls. So if you uh, took $1,000 from me, I would appreciate the apology but I would also like my money back. So I've been doing ritualistic apologies, white America to black America, for decades. But the issue of amends is absolutely correct. You need to atone and, where possible, you need to make amends. It's not either or, it's both and. Absolutely. And one of the reasons I feel strongly about reparations as opposed to just race-based policies is because race-based policies does... um, it, it it speaks to the financial restitution, but it doesn't carry the kind of psychological and emotional and moral authority that reparations do, because reparations contain an inherent mea culpa, an inherent acknowledgement of a wrong. That was, that was done by wrong, one people against another, a recognition on the part of the descendants of those people that a debt exists, a debt is owed, and willingness on the part of that people to pay the debt. That is what will interrupt the pattern and free our future in ways that will not otherwise be accomplished.
1: Amen. And it's the holiday season. And uh, also, you know, this is a time, I, I tell people this, and they always laugh and say, if, you know, we don't, you know, I'm in so many 12 programs, and one of them is Codependence Anonymous. But this is a time when we can afford to be a little codependent because we do have to push our friends and family, you know, just about everything. Just uh, talk to them and get them to donate, register them, uh, pressure them to register. Um, it's just, you know, there's so much at stake Um and most of us, not Marianne, but most of the rest of us, sort of know only the tip of the iceberg of what happens. And I always tell friends or whomever, they repeat things they hear on CNN or MSNBC. I'm not even going to get into Fox. And I always just tell them, there's so much more than that. Just because uh, a big network says it doesn't mean it's the whole story. If you really want to know the whole story. Or if it's even true.
2: Or if it's, yeah, absolutely. And I always would have agreed with you, but now I more than agree with you. I know what you're saying is true.
1: Yeah, and it's and it's very easy because when you think about the enormity of it and when you think about the power of it, it becomes overwhelming and kind of daunting and sad. Again, you know, in my twelve steps, we we always go back and say, let's stay in the solution. Because we just can't give in to it. Otherwise we're going to well, get.
2: If you're going to be in the solution, that means you have to support the solution. Absolutely. And if you find someone, whether it's me or anyone else, you know, it's everybody has. You have to look into your own conscience. But whoever the candidate is, you feel is the solution, give support, volunteer,
1: and send money. Absolutely, absolutely. We we just we all need to do a little bit more than we have been doing.
2: I think that's so true, Vic. I feel that way. I've been saying that. F- for a long time now that I felt in the last few years that there are so many ways in which enough of us are now where we need to be. Enough of us are now doing what we need to do. Just step it up. Yeah. you know, A lot of people finally we've gotten to the point, okay, I'm who I need to be enough, doing what I should be doing enough. Just step it up now, everybody. Step it up. That has yeah. been my feeling for a long time, and it's really true politically.
1: I mean, you know, on one hand, you think anyone who's been, who hasn't been under a rock, has watched the last three years, would be in a state of like anxiety of what can I do? What are we doing, what's the plan? (laughs) But just to think that, you know, the rest of us for the next 11 months have so much work to do um, because so much is at stake. I mean, (laughs) between our foreign policy, between um, the economy and healthcare, Social Security, so many things are all of a sudden they are at jeopardy all over again. I mean, LGBT rights, you know, we made such great strides. We, we gained so much during President Obama, and uh, we've lost some of that. You know, the trans community has been targeted. Um, you know, there's a trans military ban, and uh, they keep chipping away, and now health care.
2: You just said something that's very important. When you talk about the trans community now, you're not just talking about a community denied equal protection. It's worse than that. It's a community that is in some ways actually targeted. This is so huge, and serious people have to do serious thinking. So that, for instance, when I've talked about this as president, we need a president who will not only make sure that that, that – that, uh, uh, population is protected, but given special protection. Special protection means an acknowledgement on the part of law enforcement that there is special risk associated here. And this is where politics matters, because that can make all the difference between whether or not people have the protection that they need from law enforcement and other institutions.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. The trans community is targeted, and they were the easiest targets for the current administration. And uh, I always say, and I'm repeating someone, I forget who said it, said the LGBT rights movement is about one thing and one thing only, and that's the right to be average. And that means that we don't necessarily want special rights or, or separate rights. But at times, as Marianne said, it's necessary to put it on paper because it means protections.
2: You know, I remember many, many years ago when the conversation first started about uh, marriage equality. And that's another thing. I remember when even Obama, people like that were taking too long to get there. Well, marriage between a man and a woman, all that crap. I mean, it was ridiculous, I felt. but i And I remember being on on. Um, Larry King show and talking in defense of marriage equality very, very early on. Um, And I remember where, how I had been changed. Not that I was ever against it, But the thing that really made me more proactively, no, you need to say something, because that's really what we're talking about. You know, I often talk about the difference between being anti-slavery and being abolitionist. Anti-slavery means you're against it, but you don't necessarily say anything. Abolitionist means not on my watch. So the thing that shifted me from being just, just like, oh, I think gay people should be able to get married versus, no, you're a public figure and you need to talk about this, was when a gay friend of mine said, we're always taught, we're always told you're just not normal, you're just not normal. And here we want to do the most normal thing in the world. Right. Oh, we're asking, like when you were talking about being average, we want to do something could not be more normal, right. and we're being told we can't. And that just really, really like that was it for
1: me. Absolutely and And we have, you know, I've grown in areas. We've all kind of learned, and even in LGBT rights and LGBT social justice, um, I always tell people because I have I have uh, heterosexual friends who are sort of very cautious, you know, in a good way to say the right words and terms and n- names and labels. And I always tell them, "Listen, I'm as a gay man, I'm in the middle of it, right? And you would think that I sort of I'm updated on everything, but even I make mistakes. So I, the point I'm trying to make is." we all sort of learn and evolve and change. And, you know, important thing is to, like, really listen to people and see where they're coming from. And why wouldn't—I mean, if you just think about that, would we not want a (sighs) spiritual person in the White House, a spiritual person to lead our country uh, at a time when we need that more than an economist or we need that more than someone— um, you know, someone that that can change our I mean, look at our foreign policy. It's a mess. It's a joke, literally a joke. If you haven't seen it, <laughs> go on YouTube. You know, it's, it's a time when we all need it. I know that when all the tools in the world are not helping me through something, the last place I go to, which is, um, it shouldn't be the f- last place, but it's the, the one that helps me at the end of the day is spirituality.
2: JFK said, we cannot afford to be materially rich and spiritually poor. All that spirituality is is the path of the heart. And I think the average American is guided in our individual behavior by at least an effort uh, to act according to the dictates of our conscience. And what we're talking about here is that public policy should also be uh, guided by dictates of conscience and integrity and compassion and mercy and justice. And when you have public policy that is more often guided by the dictate of short-term profit maximization for uh, corporate uh, corporate entities, then that's far too often at the expense of conscience, ethics, integrity, and any level of reverence for life, or for planet, awesome. for human beings, for other species, and that divergence today between the basic goodness and decency of the Ameri- the average American and Average, uh, and decency and dignity in American policy, international as well as, as domestic. That's a, that's a gap that it is the moral challenge of our generation to close.
1: Well said. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Marianne, thank you very much. Thank
2: you so much. This, it's great talking to you. Thank
1: you. You too. It's, this has been a treat. Um, this is KPFK. I am Vic Durami your host, and you're listening to The Blunt Post with Vic. And uh, we had our guest presidential candidate Marianne Williamson. And uh, I thank Marianne and all of you listeners. I am your host, Vic Durami And that's it. Bye. <laughs> KPFK supports the fourth annual Women's March L.A. on Saturday, January 18th, 9 a.m. at Pershing Square to City Hall, downtown L.A. Women are rising to power and demanding justice for people of all genders, ages, races, cultures, political affiliations, disabilities, and backgrounds. The fourth annual Women's March L.A. will be a moment when women rise for justice, rise for equality, and rise in power. More information at womensmarchfoundation.org.
4: This is KPFK. Intervision with Nina Valens.
3: There was a conversation we had a long, long time ago where we were talking
2: about expectations. If someone doesn't meet my expectations and perhaps they don't even know what my expectations are, perhaps I should drop all that and just give them an A-plus for being who they are and not have any ideas whatsoever about who they are one way or another and just give them an A-plus and just be kind, be as sincere as possible and just accept each moment
4: as it is it's a great stress reliever actually intervision with nina valance wednesday evenings at seven and this is kpfk